0: This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security for April 24th, 2020. (music) Reports of an iPhone zero-day hack that's not yet patched, more Zoom updates, including a major version update, hackers target ad servers, and a discussion about the new iPad keyboard. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long.
1: Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing fine. I was going to ask you what day it is because uh, I think a lot of us working at home forget what day it is. Uh, (laughs) Me in general and you, you know, we work at home normally, so we don't necessarily think of days except for when we have specific things like the Intego Max Security podcast to record. But I was going to ask you because I think we should have a new day in the week. We should have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and zero day. I like that. We've
2: got a seven-day week, but why not have a zero day, right? There's so many zero days uh, that we're always talking about in the security
1: world. So that'd be kind of a cool thing to add to the week. Exactly. And of course, only people in security will understand what it means. The idea came to mind because uh, we have an article we'll link to on Motherboard. Researchers say they caught an iPhone zero-day hack in the wild. And... Uh, You know, in some ways, the, the sort of subhead is the attack shows once again that iPhones can be hacked, but there's no reason to panic yet. And we do talk about these things and they are serious, but they're not that serious. It's, you're not going to catch them by walking too close to someone in the wild, right? Yeah. No.
2: Um, the way that, so essentially zero day vulnerabilities are, it, it, it's just a blanket term that means a vulnerability that, exists in, you know, in actual products, um, it's really out there. Um, and it may or may not be something that any bad guys are using to target or attack anybody at this point in time. Some a lot of times when we talk about zero day vulnerabilities, we're talking about things that are being exploited in the wild. But that's not always necessarily the case. Um, it just essentially means a vulnerability that is in the current version of software or hardware and that could potentially affect you if you're using that software or hardware. In this case, there's a security company based in San Francisco that says that some of their customers uh, were targeted with zero-day exploits for iOS last year and that Apple has not yet patched these vulnerabilities, but they are planning to in an upcoming version of ios and in ios 13.4.5 beta evidently they will finally be addressing these particular issues um, that have been used in targeted attacks as recently as last year
1: i'm actually surprised that this company came out and said that apple has patched the vulnerabilities in the beta isn't this not the usual way that a security company should react, that they should only react when the vulnerability has been patched in the officially released version of software? Usually that's preferable.
2: Yeah. When it comes to, um, if you're the discoverer of a bug uh, most of the time, uh, the company that you're working with uh, that has to make those changes will request a particular timeline. Now, based on the fact that this Evidently was something that came up, you know, last year, and now we're in April. Um, we're we're definitely past the typical 90 days that a lot of times security researchers um, will give a company before going public with information about um, a vulnerability that they've discovered and this is 90 days isn't there's no hard and fast rule that that's what you have to stick to but a lot of companies will do this Google in fact has a, a security research division where they have researchers who analyze uh, lots of other companies' products, and that might be web browsers. Sometimes uh, they find things in Apple products. Um, a lot of times, if you go and read through the notes, you know, the, who found these vulnerabilities, Apple will attribute them to uh, the original researcher. And a lot of times, they're Google Project Zero uh, workers who, who find these vulnerabilities. And... So it, you know, Apple is giving credit where it's due, but, and, and also, um, the company sort of has this general agreement that, okay, well, we're not going to disclose anything to the public and put people at risk unless you are taking an inordinate amount of time to fix these issues. Because then that the philosophy is that that sort of puts, users at greater risk, because now there's something that's been out there long enough that other bad guys may have discovered it and started using it.
1: And there's also another fix in iOS 13.4.5. We talked about a VPN-related vulnerability, I think just last week, and apparently that's fixed in the beta as well. So we'll certainly discuss this new version of iOS when it comes out. Uh, I must say it does get tiring after a while of, you know version, point, version, point, version over and over with tiny incremental fixes and bug fixes and security fixes. But they are kind of essential, aren't they?
2: Well, yeah. I, I think the big takeaway for any of these kinds of stories is that it's very important to make sure that when Apple or other companies release an update, that you install the update quickly because you you never know. I mean, it's sure, it may not be super likely that you're going to be targeted, but also... These vulnerabilities are not just used in targeted attacks. And especially once there becomes sort of a more public awareness of these vulnerabilities, they may go from a formerly targeted vulnerability, you know, a targeted attack vulnerability to now a general vulnerability that is more widely known, the bad guys are much more likely to use it, and they're no longer just going to be using it in targeted attacks. So now it becomes something that you definitely should be patching that as soon as you reasonably can, just to make sure you're protecting your yourself and your devices.
1: Right. And that's the main message for most of our listeners who aren't security professionals or IT professionals. Um, don't worry too much about the details, just keep everything up to date, but be aware of some of these issues in case you are confronted with them that you know how to react. Right. Okay. so time for this week's Zoom zinger. This is a big one. Uh, New York Times is reporting that Zoom security woes were no secret to business partners like Dropbox. Dropbox privately paid top hackers to find bugs in software by the video conferencing company Zoom and then pressed it to fix them. Now, privately paid top hackers is just basically... Um, hire a security company that's going to analyze things. So the New York Times wording there sounds a little bit nefarious. Uh, but this is not uncommon that people will do, what would you call it? A red team, um, analysis of software. That's the team that's looking for everything that's wrong. Right. Yeah,
2: exactly. We've talked about white hats and black hats before. And I don't know if we've really talked much about red teams and blue teams. And it's not the political colors
1: it has nothing to do with that. True.
2: Yeah. The red teaming and blue teaming has to do with, um, the attack angle and the defense angle. Um, and you also have something that's called purple teams where, uh, you know, people work together as a team and are kind of on both sides of, of that uh, perspective and, and work closely together. So you often want to have, in an attack minded attack oriented group looking at your software um whether that means the software that you develop or software that your organization uses to see if they can find problems with it that could potentially put your organization or your customers at risk evidently that's something like what was was done here it seems sort of odd right um
1: Dropbox, why, why would they care about Zoom security, but well, it's because Dropbox invested in Zoom before they went public. And there's also an integration between Zoom and Dropbox. Right. So that that, that sort of explains
2: the, the the history and what's going on behind the scenes. Because you read a headline like this and you go, what the heck does Zoom and Dropbox? What do they have to do with each other? So um, so that's a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes. Um, so Dropbox apparently was not too surprised to hear about some of these issues with Zoom. It is it is sort of, unfortunate. Fortunate that it took, you know, Zoom's uh, rise to greater popularity and the you know successive you know discovery of a whole bunch of different Zoom issues all in a row um, for Zoom to really start to change the, their perspective and say, oh, okay, yeah, no, 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 yeah, ninety days, we're going to have all this stuff fixed and we're going to add a whole bunch of new security features. It's good. I'm glad that. Zoom has reacted as well as they have to these things that have been discovered and, and have f- fixed a lot of these things fairly quickly. Um, it's just, it's unfortunate that they didn't already start working on these things a lot more seriously earlier on.
1: Well, the article describes not only the way that Dropbox just essentially considered that. Zoom was unsecure. Um, It says Zoom's reputation for security weaknesses began to spread within Dropbox, within the company. But that other companies also discovered this. Uh, There were companies that were analyzing Zoom's code and trying to hack it. And there were just more and more and more. And it makes you just think that they were just kind of sloppy. and And you would think that not only were they sloppy, but they had these companies who were coming to them and basically telling them that things were broken I mean, we we reported th- th- recently about uh, how the CEO said we're going to stop everything for 90 days and fix everything. And even this week, Zoom, uh, as they say on their blog, they hit a milestone on their 90-day security plan and released Zoom 5.0. Yeah, and Zoom's 5.0 software,
2: they say that um, they ha- have included robust security enhancements, um, including using better encryption. That was one of the uh, criticisms that researchers had um, that they claim to be using really good encryption, but apparently it wasn't as good as probably they should have been using. So they say, well, now we add support for AES 256 bit GCM encryption, which is, which is better than what they had been using. So that's good. And, uh, and a, f- a few other things, a lot of these are a lot more technical, but um, but they have included some additional things that should hopefully make this, the Zoom software more secure and, and a little bit safer to use.
1: One thing I find interesting is that one of the privacy accusations against Zoom was that a lot of their data centers were hosted in China. And there is going to be an option now that admins and account owners of paid accounts can, at the account group or user level, opt out of or into specific data center regions with respect to data in transit. So you'll see a list of Australia, Canada, China, Europe, Hong Kong, India, Japan, Latin America, United States. And you can uncheck them so your data doesn't go through those territories. Yeah, that's a great thing. Okay, in sort of speculative fiction, uh, we have an article from 9to5Mac. Why hasn't Apple released a dedicated app for iCloud keychain? And it's a really good question because I'll link in the show notes to an article that I wrote about keychain access, which is the app on the Mac. There is no real app on iOS for managing your iCloud keychain. You have to go into settings, accounts, and passwords. It's really obscure to get to it. And it really would make sense to have an app that lets you control all of these things. And and I was mentioning to you before the show, one difference between what you can do on the Mac app and what you can do in iOS is you can add secure notes to the keychain access app, even in iCloud, but you can't access them on iOS. And it would make a lot of sense for them to either provide an app or provide some sort of access on iCloud.com.
2: Right. I mean, this would make a lot of sense. Apple has, is certainly in a position where they can be the go-to uh, password manager for, for people. And they're trying to do that. I mean, they, they're now prompting you when you enter your credentials for the first time on a website to, do you want to add this to your iCloud keychain? which is is very useful for people who are primarily or maybe exclusively using Apple devices uh, and with particularly with uh, Safari and, and on the Mac and also um, a variety of apps that it's compatible with on iOS but, uh but because Apple's in that unique position they really could have a password manager that uh you know would would be very successful and it it's just it's funny to me that on one side it looks like they are trying to do that but on the other side they still don't even have like a separate app and and you've got to as you say go several layers deep to even find this stuff um you may not even know how to look
1: for it on a Mac because the keychain access Mac is hidden in the utilities folder, in the applications folder. It's not a place where most people go.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's not it's not a commonly used app. Um, and and there isn't really even a dedicated app for it at all on iOS. So it is sort of it, it's a little bit of a bizarre experience. It's very un-Apple-like. And so I, I think that's what uh, what they were getting at in this uh, nine to five Mac article. So it's it's interesting. I I would not be too surprised um, to see Apple eventually coming out with a dedicated password manager app. Uh, and like you say, this would have other advantages, like actually having a, a nice place that you could go on iOS to see your secure notes rather than really not being able to have a good place for that or having to use a
1: separate app. Like you do have a, a notes app. And that can be secure, but yeah. it, it you want to you have all these things that are password related. You want to have them in one place. You were saying before the show, when we were discussing this, people put many things into their password manager. I have my credit card numbers, my bank account information, um, photocopy of my passport, driving license and, and things. Things like that. And this is all data that you want to have centralized. You don't want to have to put it in a lot of locations.
2: Right. And, and it's not something that you necessarily want to put in just uh, maybe an unsecured note or you know write it down someplace. You, you want to have that kind of information because it's personally identifiable information, you want to have it in a nice secure place, but also easily accessible to you. And a password manager is a logical place for that. A lot of times people even put um, social security numbers for uh, the family members or their own, if they can't remember their own, um, (laughs) you know, into a password manager. I don't personally put my social security number into a password manager but uh you know that that is a valid use case and as long as you're using a really good password to get into uh, to unlock your password manager that can be a good thing um you know a a good way to to go about that certainly again a lot better than a less secure method of
1: storing that information okay we're going to take a break and when we come back we're going to talk about apple's new two-in-one portable computer If you or someone
0: you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intigo.com today and then use the promo code PODCAST20 at checkout to save 40%. That's PODCAST20 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intigo.com today.
1: Okay, uh, in other news this week, we have an article on ZDNet. Hackers have breached 60 ad servers to load their own malicious ads. Now, I've been using an ad blocker for a long time, and Josh, I know you have as well. And it probably started when they did those flashing ads, because it's really impossible to read an article when you got something flashing in the sidebar, attracting your attention. And we started blocking ads for pop-up windows because they could be malicious and autoplay videos. And there's all these things. And this article kind of justifies ad blocking. You know, you can say that ad blocking is bad because publications need revenue from ads. But if they're just going to put bad ads on their sites, Um, then we don't want to even see those bad ads. We don't want to be exposed to them. So here, actual ad servers have been breached to serve malicious ads. And the problem with this is when a newspaper puts an, an advertisement in the print edition of a newspaper, a human being looks at the ad, edits it, lays it out, checks the art and everything. But with something like this, it's all automated. And no one on the website knows what ads are being served um, when when the site is running.
2: Well, right, that's the big problem. So most of the time uh, you, you make a deal with an ad network, right? That's how this typically works. And then you're using code that they provide to load advertisements from that third party's own servers. And that's where this becomes a problem because the news organization or whatever it is that's running the ads. Um, has no control really over those ads. They can make whatever deals they want with that ad provider and say, well, we want you to run this type of ad or something like that. Most of the time, though, those ads are going to be targeted to the users based on, uh, you know, articles that they've read or other places they've been online, even. And because, tar- of course, targeted ads are more likely to get clicked on. So these news outlets and other places that run these ads really generally have very little if any control over the ads being run and of course they have zero control over the servers that are actually serving those ads they're they're embedding code from some third party that references third party servers and so it's all out of their control they're just trusting that these ad networks are going going to uh, be taking the proper security precautions now it's worth mentioning that this is not the first time that this has ever happened this has happened actually multiple times. It's not always made headlines even when this occurs. Uh, you know, sometimes there will just be some chatter about it on, you know, social networks where people will say, Oh, hey, um, I went to, you know, whatever it might be in New York Times or ZDNet or something this morning. And I, I got, uh, some strange pop-up and other people will say, Oh, yeah, that happened to me too. Um, And sometimes these things uh, actually try to automatically download malware or trick you into clicking on something to download malware. And um, this this is something that just inherently can happen with having someone else provide ads
1: for your site. What I find interesting is that the article says that these malware-laced files are usually disguised as Adobe Flash Player updates. How many times have we told people not to use Adobe Flash, Josh? (laughs) This is episode 132. I bet in every single episode, we've mentioned Adobe Flash. (laughs) Maybe not quite every,
2: but certainly a lot. Yeah, we've talked about it a lot. Uh, I I wrote an article not too long ago about how crazy it is that uh, we're still
1: seeing all these fake Flash players all over the place. Okay, so before the break, I mentioned that we were going to discuss Apple's new two-in-one portable computer. Now, I have to admit, when Apple announced this new Magic Keyboard for the iPad, I was a bit... Yeah, on the fence. And I wasn't sure. And it's really quite expensive. Uh, I have an 11-inch iPad Pro. Uh, it's $300 uh, or 300 pounds for this. It's 350 for the 12.9. But... I got this thing and I was instantly, I was won over by this. And and it's strange because I don't really care that much. I know people who buy keyboards over and over for their iPads and I've never really cared about it that much, but there's something about what this device does. It totally changes the way the iPad works. So I'll link in the show notes to the article I've written and you'll look at the photos and you'll see how the iPad kind of floats above the keyboard. And and that's kind of nice because previous keyboard cases like this, the iPad is flush with the keyboard. And while it's only an inch or two difference, it does make a difference in the angle and, and your posture when you're using the device.
2: Yeah. Before we started recording, um Kirk, you held up your your uh iPad with the, the keyboard attached to it and... I, I noted how Im- impressive that was that you can just stick your hand underneath the keyboard and the, the iPad's not going anywhere. It's it's floating above the keyboard even while you're just holding it in your hand like
1: that. Um it's really sturdy. It is. It's sturdy. It well, it's heavy. The the eleven inch weighs six hundred grams, but it's uh, the base is it must be solid aluminum and the back, the bit that holds the iPad has a magnetic connection to the iPad and you could dance with this and it wouldn't fall off. Yet, if you want to take the iPad off, and use it as a tablet with your hands or with the Apple Pencil, it just comes right off. There's no complicated, you know, some of these third-party keyboards, they they work in a way that they have a shell case with a hinge, and you have to, to squeeze the iPad into the shell. Here it just pops right off. We, we were talking before the show, and I'm sure I've said this, um, several times recently, is I'm getting more and more frustrated by the complications of macOS, and I'm getting more and more seduced by the simplicity of iOS. Now, this doesn't work for everything. When I, when I'm doing writing, I can work on iOS. I need one window to write. I, With a keyboard, I press Command Tab to switch apps to go to, say, Safari, copy a link, whatever. It's a little bit different for editing photos, editing podcasts. You know, that needs a Mac. But more and more, I want to get away from using my Mac and use something that's more flexible. I want to stop being tied to my desk. I think the basic use case for most people who buy this keyboard are people who are using it on the road, who aren't people who work at home, although an awful lot of people working at home these days aren't going out on the road. But the ability to have what's essentially an 11-inch laptop and an 11-inch iPad, or 12.9 if that's the size of yours, is really quite amazing, the, the way Apple managed to do this. Personally, I don't really use an iPad all that much, but I
2: think that if uh, if I were going to be using an iPad for a lot of writing, I would definitely want to get a physical keyboard because I, uh, as nice as it is to to have that virtual on-screen keyboard for you know those little things that you might want to type in for a, ser- a search query or something like that, you don't really have to do a lot of typing there. But if you're if you're using this as a device that you're going to be doing a lot of writing on, I, I can't imagine doing that without a physical keyboard and and I like what Apple's
1: doing here. Now one thing I think a lot of people are going to be concerned about is the price. 299 and 349, yeah. Which which makes the combination of an iPad Pro and a Magic Keyboard more expensive than a MacBook Air and either just about, or heavier than a MacBook Air, uh, depending on which, depending on whether it's the 11 inch or the the 12.9 inch.
2: Yeah, and of course you could get a Bluetooth
1: keyboard for a lot cheaper than that if you wanted to. Sure, you, you know you could go cheap. <laughs> sure, and and there are some great Logitech keyboards. Um, I have a few of them. Now that's really good. If you're using your iPad on a desk and you have a stand to hold it up off the desk and you use a keyboard, it connects with Bluetooth. But what's good here is you can put it on your lap anywhere. I've got a comfortable leather chair, um, on the side of my office and I like to work there. And I put my feet up on the little cushion in front of it. And I just put this on my lap. It's really solid. It doesn't wiggle when I'm typing it's like the iPad with this keyboard has become a totally new device for me. And Hmm. it's very rare that I'm this um, positive about a new Apple device. Yeah. You know, I, it sounds cool. I mean, I, I'm still
2: not quite at the point where I, I think I, I could switch to an iPad as a, as a primary device or a device, even that I'm using a lot more than I am now. But, uh, but apple is making a lot of really good strides in that direction both with the software now being of course ipad os instead of just you know uh ios with a couple of features added they're really doing a lot to enhance the iPad experience as far as the operating system. And now also um, they've made a lot of improvements with the hardware over the, uh, the past couple of years as well with uh, the Apple Pencil, uh, which, by the way, you've also done a review of on the Mac security blog and uh, and now with the, the great. New Magic Keyboard. It sounds great. I mean, it, it looks great. Uh, I like your the pictures that, you, that you've got up there. Um, I definitely encourage people to to check out this article if you if you're at all curious about it, check
1: it out. And and one thing that I didn't mention before is the fact that this keyboard has a trackpad, and with iOS 13.4, there's really good trackpad support in the iPad. Now you were saying earlier, you can just get a Bluetooth keyboard. And I said, right, you can put it on stand. You still have to touch in that case. Yes. You could connect a Bluetooth trackpad the same way you do on a Mac. Um, but here the trackpad is in the keyboard and in, in the previous uh, smart keyboard folio, I think it was called, obviously it didn't have that. And it's really clever. The cursor is this little gray circle that moves around. And then when you move it into text, it, it, it doesn't change into a vertical cursor. It morphs. It it has an actual animation going from the circle to the vertical cursor. Huh. It's very attractive the way they've designed this. And having it not be a pointer as well uh, really sets it apart from what you're used to on a computer.
2: Yeah, I, I, it sounds interesting. Also, I, it's definitely a great thing to include the trackpad built in because it makes it so much more of a of an apple like experience if, if you're used to occasionally using a macbook or or if even that's your primary device you're used to having a trackpad and you know below the keyboard, and so this will be a seamless experience shifting from one to the other
1: yeah so, so the real question is is the future of the iPad a device like this with a keyboard? Could they come out with an iPad that is actually what was do you remember the name of the Microsoft device that that you could take apart that had the tablet and the keyboard that would sort of connect. They currently have something called the Surface Go, which is actually... Uh, just a little bit more expensive than the iPad magic keyboard, to be honest. Um, but, but early on in uh, Microsoft's tablet line, they had something that was a lot more weighty. In fact, the two in one laptop is a thing for Windows users. I know someone who has a Lenovo yoga, which is basically it looks like a laptop, but you pull the screen part off and there are lots of two in one Uh, Microsoft Windows-compatible devices like that. So this is, in some way, Apple is catching up. It is certainly heavier probably than some of these uh, Windows devices, uh, but some of the Windows devices are a lot more expensive than the combination of the iPad and the keyboard.
2: Yeah, a lot of this really depends on your use case. Um, You know, uh, what apps do you want to be able to run? Is it something that you can do on Windows, iOS, you know, macOS, there's just really not an option for this, uh, that detachable thing right now. There's, uh, I don't know if Apple's ever going to go that direction. That'd be interesting to see if, <laughs> if Apple ever comes out yeah, with a. I,
1: well, we should discuss this at some point, maybe in a year, because I think that they're getting closer and closer to iOS and macOS merging into some sort of a hybrid. Um, I know I've talked to a lot of uh, my friends and colleagues who don't want to see that happen and many others who do. I think there's a lot that macOS can get from iOS that's positive and vice versa, like like the trackpad support with the cursor. But I, I just find that Apple's made a bold step here that's not really quite visible. It's just a keyboard, but when you put it together, it's really a totally new device for Apple. Okay, that's enough for this week. Um, next week, we'll be back with probably another Zoom zinger. What do you want to bet on that? <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm not making any hard bets, but, uh, you know, um, given what's been
2: going on lately, I, I would say it's a good possibility. Okay, until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure.
0: Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com.